Hello, Dexter Morgan fans, and welcome to the Dexter New Blood Wrap-Up Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Reynolds, writer and producer of Showtime original series, Dexter, and now the new Showtime special event series, Dexter New Blood. But first things first, for those listeners who don't have Showtime yet, visit show.com forward slash Dexter pod for a special limited time offer. You get to try Showtime free for 30 days and then just $3.99 a month for your first four months. Once again, it's show.com forward slash Dexter pod. This offer is for new customers only and expires November 30th, 2021. So get on that if you want to see what we're talking about. Uh, and you definitely want to make sure you have Showtime because today is a very exciting day as we're discussing the premiere episode of Dexter New Blood. It's official. Dexter's back. And we're going to dive into it, where he is, what he's doing, and who he is now. So joining me to break down the first episode of New Blood is the man everyone has been waiting to see again, Dexter Morgan himself, Michael C. Hall, multiple Emmy-nominated star and executive producer of Dexter New Blood. And later we're going to talk to Clyde Phillips, Dexter showrunner, executive producer of Dexter New Blood and writer of this episode and discuss how it all came together. So uh, let's get into it. Michael, thanks for coming on. Sure. Yeah. The premiere. How was that? Uh, it was amazing. Showtime did this amazing thing and invited a bunch of fans of the show to sit in the front section of the theater. So we were watching a premiere, not just a bunch of actors and their friends and corporate suits, but actual genuine fans of the show. It was really fun to hear their enthusiasm and audible gasps and cheers and other reactions. And it's just not an experience that you can quite have watching it on the small screen at home. So it was really gratifying to feel like we were on to something that people who know and love the show were instinctually responding to. Yeah, it's fun when you think you know how people are going to respond. But the one that I was caught off guard by was when Dexter starts putting together his kill room. And that yeah. sort of crescendo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like there. anticipation. He's back. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, such an appetite for him to get back to work. It was... Um, <laughs> It was pretty it was pretty wild. It was it was really exciting and also kind of jarring. New Blood is a bit of a departure from the Dexter we knew, right? He's clearly started over. He has a new name, a new persona, and is living this, you know, normal in quotes, low-key life. So yeah. you want to talk about how you sort of approached playing this new but still familiar character? Yeah. A lot of it was so totally informed by the environment, you know, just being in this completely, I don't know, turned inside out world that was cold instead of hot and was a small town instead of a metropolis and it goes on and on. You know, I think there was a stage direction in an early version of a script from a scene that maybe wasn't even quite there anymore, but it just suggested that Dexter was communicating with somebody in the store, helping them in a way that revealed that he was one of these people. And when I talked about what Dexter's look would be like with Marcos, he um, said, you know, he should look like an old shoe. You know, he's just an inconspicuous part of the fabric of this world instead of the world we used to see him in. And he's blended in. And I think, obviously, the biggest change is that he hasn't killed anybody in eight years. He's uh, kind of acknowledged that he doesn't deserve that privilege anymore. Um, I think the fact that he's made that decision reveals a lot about um, his humanity. It suggests that he does, in fact, possess some, you know. Yeah. If he didn't, he would have just 
left town and continued to kill without any remorse or any sense of responsibility for the collateral damage that he has created. You know, he used to be a guy who had this um, really authentic, monstrous side that he indulged and this really um, inauthentic but very believable presentation that he showed the world. And the lines between those two continually blurred as the show moved forward. Yeah. So much so that it's hard to know where the monster begins and where the person, the supposedly fake person ends. And I think he's buried the monster now. And all he is is this new simulation. And this new simulation is, ironically, the most earnest attempt he's ever made at being authentic. But of course, if the monster does emerge, which it does, <laughs> <They know>. chaos, <laughs> a, a chaos that's sort of of a different flavor is going to ensue internally, I think, for the character. Dexter's superpower is sort of to be able to blend in. And he believes the lie and knows it's a lie. And mm -hmm. uh, But like you say, it's never been more real, I guess, than it is in this small town. Yeah, he's sort of like come to terms with I don't think he thinks he's as unique as he maybe once thought he was. I mean, all of us, and I think he maybe has come to recognize this, tell ourselves a story and present some face of that story to the world. We're all playing at authenticity and playing roles in different situations. And I think he's a little less preoccupied with his being a man apart, I think. Yeah. Uh, He's not quite a stepdad, but he's kind of a stepdad. And then he's got this relationship with Angela, um, which again, throughout it, we were always sort of like, when we were talking about Dexter in the room, we talked about how he has this very, um, he wants to control his universe, right? Right. And so he has to get into the police station a little bit. He has to be surrounded by weapons a little bit. He has to have just those little touchstones that seem normal. But when you know his past, it is wild that, He's dating the chief of police. Yeah, I mean, it's fun to think about, you know, when he's home alone, is he sort of bemused with the fact that he's chosen or finds himself in a relationship with the chief of police? Is that something that he sought out consciously? Is it something that, I mean, he couldn't have, is obviously a part of what drew him to her. Um, but is he dating her in spite of that, because of that? And, you know, as is so often the answer to questions that are either or in the case of Dexter, it's probably both. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, Deb's death, right, was mm -hmm. the biggest moment, I feel, in Dexter's life. Um, had a huge impact on him. Um, what was it like to play against Deb as Dexter's conscience as opposed to the sister, like an actual other human being? Um, yeah. Because it seemed I mean, different than the way Harry was played, you know? Yeah, very different. I mean, I think the difference has to do with the <clears throat> fact that they're different characters, but I think the difference also has a great deal to do with the fact that he's a different character and is much more, at least potentially, at odds with himself. I think when we first see them, I think we're seeing what the relationship has been, one that's serene and comforting and domestic and gives some sort of like companionship and has a level of ease to it that could never be achieved in real life between the two of them. Never quite. I think that internalized relationship is sort of the primary reward of his abstinence. 
you know, that he gets to enjoy this eternalized relationship with the sister who he so fundamentally wronged. He pays the price for that relationship by not killing and by shutting the door on his former life. And obviously, once he both kills again and welcomes Harrison back into his life, the nature of that internalized relationship is going to become a lot more chaotic and dicey and unpredictable and abusive. And <laughs> you never know. You never know. Yeah. Um, yeah, it and, was... and it's it's basically the picture of a guy who's at odds with himself and is experiencing a great deal of inner turmoil and conflict over his return to his old ways. I remember when we were like talking through this, even on set, of how important it was in that first few scenes before Harrison arrives that these two are comfortable in silence, which is sort of like the anti-Deb from before. Like, it felt like the, the other Deb had to fill the silence at all yeah. times. You know, yeah. that something had to be happening, questioning whatever, whether it's about herself or about Dexter. And, uh, and we really wanted that first scene to just, you know, those just beautiful moments of, like I remember on set, when Jennifer... Uh, when when uh, Dexter and uh, Deb were eating, Dexter's eating breakfast, eating the muesli. Yeah. You know, he's not, mm-hmm. even that's like kind of yeah, a punishment. It's <laughs> it's, yeah, it's yeah. He's, he's decidedly, at least relatively speaking, ascetic and, yeah. and um, monastic. Withholding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When uh, she, when we sat at the table and there was that two shot, and I, I feel like you're going to talk about when Jennifer yeah. like just sort of slid her arm down. And I sort of took that offer and moved my hand towards her without touching her. It felt like, yes, that's it. This is the sort of safe place in which he's able to exist psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, with the memory of her and what he's done. I mean, I think of him as having been in this protracted state of penance. One of the things that's established very early on is that Dexter, like you've been saying, has been abstinent from killing. And we see him, the routine was very important, sort of setting up this idea of Dexter has placed his life in morning routines, in running after a deer, hunting, you know, it looks like he's hunting a deer, crossing days off calendars. I want to talk about that process, why that was so important for Dexter, and even just like the deer chasing is... Mm-hmm. I think he's always been a creature of habit, and like he's found these new, somewhat ritualized behaviors that his lifestyle in the present context necessitates. I mean, he has to chop wood or he's going to be too cold. He has to feed his animals or they're going to die. He's placed himself in a situation where a certain ritual element of his lifestyle is necessary, and I think it keeps him occupied. It's all a sort of part of his therapeutic lifestyle. Tracking the white deer and following the deer, it's something that people do, actually. We'll track an animal like that through the woods to the point where they have to stop running just because of the fact of their heart rate having accelerated to a degree where they can't run anymore. So I think in Dexter's case, he's never been a hunter, and this animal didn't do anything wrong, but he is a hunter of a sort, and he is addicted to pursuit. So again, this is a kind of methadone. It exhausts him physically. It satisfies some sort of deep drive to track and pursue it. Um, brain. 
Yeah, yeah. And he puts himself close to the edge of doing the deed and he never does it. He's sort of fortifying his resolve. And I think also this animal is, he says it to Matt, you know, he was perfect. He didn't do anything wrong. There's a purity to this animal, a purity that I think Dexter longs to experience, longs to not even return to, but discover and longs to literally touch. And he eventually, over the course of the episode, gets to a place with this deer. I imagine this has been a long-going process where he actually touches it. And when he touches it, the deer is destroyed. His access to that purity is destroyed. And he destroys the person who killed the deer. Also, it's the morning after he turned away his son. Yeah, You know, I think that has a lot to do with why he snaps. Yeah, that was like an argument in the writer's room in a lot of ways, was that would Dexter have killed Matt if Harrison had not been that thing that happened in town. You know, if, ha- if right. Harrison hadn't arrived, because for me, when we were like sort of putting this together, never has Dexter needed connection as bad as when he pushed his son away. Because, I mean, right. that scene when Dexter has to push his son away. I mean, you want to talk about that night? I mean, that was, yeah. that was pretty intense. Yeah, it was absolutely heartbreaking. There was one take where I actually got upset and Marcos was like, all right, get yourself together because you can't show him that, you know, it was just, (laughs) but it was just so heartbreaking. Um, I think when I read the script, it felt like it was the trickiest scene, you know, the most difficult. And it's certainly one of many instances where the presence of Deb in Dexter's world and in the world of the show really goes such a long way to showing us what's going on internally. I mean, for her to look at him and list the people who've died and remind him of his commitment and to literally take a bullet out of her stomach and show it to him, I think helps us understand why he feels he just can't welcome Harrison back in. But I really love the timing of it, that that happens. He has the nightmare. He wakes up the next morning, goes out, touches the deer, and the next thing he knows, he's killing Matt Caldwell. He's buried the killer, but he's also buried the father. He's buried a part of his humanity. And Harrison stirs that water up. You stir up the sort of deepest part of someone. It's not just their light. It's their darkness, too. It's not just the this. It's also the that. And so his desire for connection and his desire to have a relationship with the only flesh and blood evidence that he's a real human being on Earth, his son, he turns that away. But it's been activated. And of course, the next day, there's a residual activation of his dark passenger. I mean, obviously, Matt pushes some buttons. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I do think it's possible that Dexter may have been able to restrain himself in that moment had the night before not been one where his son showed up and he turned him away. Accolades toward you. One of my favorite moments in that scene with Harrison, when Dexter sees the light turn on, somebody's in his place, and like the physicality just all came back, darting across the Mm -hmm. snow, picking up Mm -hmm. that hatchet, stepping inside, creeping forward. Oh my God, he's going to kill somebody. He's just been waiting for this excuse. It's an intruder. Yeah, he's like, oh, thank, thank, thank goodness. This is what I, this is just what I needed. It's a righteous kill. And then this whole realization that, oh my God, it's Harrison in front of me. And after Dexter says, you got the wrong guy, I guess I must have that kind of face. He then had this moment where you realize you're standing there with the hatchet. Yeah, yeah. That was kind of a happy 
accident. I remember we were like, oh, it's weird that I'm holding this hatchet in my hand. I should just set it down conveniently at that table there with all the tools and sharpening equipment. But I just, yeah, I held it. And yeah, it's just a moment that revealed itself and felt really perfect. The kill. Yeah. Matt. I mean. Oh, man. That guy is so good. Steve Robertson. Yeah. Man. He was so, so good. Matt on the table, wrapped in plastic. Um, yeah. Want to just talk about that scene? Like what it was like stepping back into that and the yeah. kill? And- because of the way we shot this, we didn't get to that until, I don't know. I feel like we were well past halfway through shooting yeah. when we did the Matt kill. And um, it was eerie how genuinely, after spending all the time I had up to that point playing the character again, how genuinely it felt like a sacred space, you know, just like Dexter had fashioned a little chapel out of his tool shed. And um, this one person, well, two person worship service that he was performing. (laughs) And um, there was just, yeah, there was a way of moving through the space that felt, I mean, it was perfect. It was perfect to have waited as long as I had as an actor to return to this character and to play a scene like this again, just as Dexter has waited as long as he has to feel rusty, you know, to feel rusty logistically, but also internally rusty. And yet to feel how eerily familiar it all was, the way Dexter moves through spaces like that, the way he positions himself when he interrogates someone, like it's all just like... Yeah, the finger and the third eye. I mean, he loves to poke people in the third eye. Um, Yeah, it felt electric. This is who he is. This is what we're up to. I mean, it always feels with the character. It's like, uh, now I am alone. You know, now I can be myself. It can be true and honest and talk openly about everything, you know. Yeah, and I can communicate without reservation with another person, ironically. Yeah. You know, those are always the people who I kill, but... When we were sort of putting it together, we were wanting to make that sort of, like, it opens up Dexter enough that he's like, I need this again in my life. I need not just the kill, but I need my son back in my life. And also... Yeah, exactly. It's it's that same phenomenon, just, like, opening the door to that desire for connection and genuine sharing that he has with Matt, twistedly. Yeah, Yeah, he does him in. He's like, I got to find another friend. Oh, my son. (laughs) That's right. <laughs> Again, great kill scene. Everything about it felt complete, you know. Yeah. In any I, other episode, like, that could have been the ending. <laughs> yeah. I liked, you know, the fact that he gets him to confess about driving the boat into the other boat. And you see Dexter kind of performing the scary yeah. kind of the five Ends. people. And then the real exposed nerve of the deer comes out. Yeah. You know, you shot my deer. Like, that's shot my deer. That's the thing that I feel like is really important for the trajectory of the season in terms of Dexter's relationship to killing as it exists now. It is in that moment and I think remains much more personal. That final scene, Dexter deciding to pick up his son, ignoring Mm -hmm. Deb saying, what are you doing? Yeah. Dexter says what I should have done a long time ago. He says not listening to you. Not listening to you. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And landing at the bus stop. It's a strange thing to hear Dexter say, please, to almost prostrate himself. I don't don't think he's ever made himself that vulnerable before. I agree. 
Want to talk about that? Like the, the two of you yeah. together in that scene were, you know, we, we had the benefit of like, that was like one of the last scene for Jack. That was Jack's last day, last scene. It was very much obviously towards the end of the shoot. He and I had been through everything together. Yeah. We had individually and as a simulating this father and son relationship sort of covered all the ground. And it was such a gift that we got to shoot that last. But yeah, it was just such a beautifully simple scene. So much subtext, you know, such loaded lines, such loaded silences. And it was very satisfying. And yeah, I mean, I think it's the most human we've seen him be. Was there a moment filming that first episode that you want to talk about? I don't know if anybody noticed, but I requested that there be a chair that I can spin in when I'm behind the desk at Fred's right. Fish and Game in the morning yeah. as a call back to the pilot episode when Dexter's spinning around in his chair and his little um, blood spatter station. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on to this, Michael. Of course, time. of course. I, know I enjoyed busy. it. Yeah, it's a good time. And joining me now is my mentor, my friend, my showrunner, Clyde Phillips. He's the Dexter Newblood executive producer and writer of this first episode. Uh, Clyde, man, we've known each other a long time. Yeah. Uh, why don't you tell everybody how we met? <laughs> uh, was it prison or was that somebody else? I that was forget. somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, uh, I'm trying to remember. Like we met, I met through uh, Robert Lewis. Mm-hmm. I was working on a, I was working on a, I was working on a different show, and you were looking for a writing assistant. Uh, and uh, he was like, "Hey, you should meet Clyde." And so I met you, and uh, you put up with me. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think we had um, coffee at the at at a restaurant, and at the, by by the end of the um, coffee, I said, "Okay, you got the job. I don't need to see anybody else." Yeah. And then not now you're executive producer of uh, New Blood. Yeah, that was that was probably what twenty years ago, I think. At this, it feels point, like it I was. Think. It feels like it was twenty years ago. Yeah, and you were on Dexter the first four seasons. That's right, I was. How was that getting Dexter to like go back to it? I think it's a, a lot of it comes from if we can talk about it because this will lead into where we're going with the new season. Was you come from a, a family of heart of, of like a, a, a rough family life growing up when yes. you were young? Yes. Yeah, it just you know, and and Dexter, and you were. In your own way, I would say, born in blood, considering what your father did for a living. <laughs> yeah, my father was a butcher, and he was also a gambler, and uh, um, and he was also in the Jewish mob in Boston, but at the lowest possible level. If you think of the movie um, Rocky, and Rocky's an enforcer, and he's beating yeah. up some guy named Vinny, the guy who would be, be beating up would, would have been my father. Um <laughs> And I was born oh, when my mother was 17, and my parents never really took to being parents. So I yeah. kind of had to raise myself, uh, much as Dexter did. Um, yeah. And, you know, the, one of the great themes in my life is fathers and sons, which is the theme of the um, <clears throat> uh, this whole season of New Blood. And it comes out in all my writing, in my books, in every script I write. Uh, there's always an issue, whether it's a good issue or a bad issue, about fathers and sons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that was that sort of the connective tissue to the new to the new series because 
uh, again, when when Dexter wrapped at the end of season eight, uh, it, f- it kind of felt like Dexter was never going to happen again. And then every once in a while, Michael C. Hall would pop up in an interview and the inevitable question to him was like, do you ever think that you'd ever want to do Dexter again? Would you return to this role? Uh, he ended up um, a couple times going, yeah, I think I think I could see myself returning to this thing. Uh, and then... You want to talk about that? That's when you got the call, sure. more or less, right? Well, yeah. Well, a, a couple of times earlier, it would come up on my feed that Michael had, you know, seven years ago said, "Yeah, maybe." And so I'd call him up and I say, "Do you mean it?" And he says, well, "I'm not so sure. Kind of had to say that, or uh, <clears throat> I'm not, I don't think I'm ready yet." Um, or there was a script that was developed that I didn't go for, and um, I, or I'm not available. I'm off in England doing safe. Or, or yep. whatever it is, or these movies that he's yeah, he doing. kept busy between Broadway yeah. and and television. Broadway and, 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 and his and his band. He's a, yep. he's a musician oh, yeah. and a singer. I'm going to cough. Princess goes to the Butterfly Museum. <coughs> so uh, if if people uh, want to listen to some Michael C. Hall singing, sounding very Bowie-esque at times, you should check out. Yes, Princess yeah. Goes I was just the just listening Museum. today. I was listening to uh, Eden Eraser, and uh, it's David Bowie. Yeah. So anyway. Two year, more two and a half years ago now, I was on Martha's Vineyard, where I am right now, um, and my phone rang, and it was Gary Levine, who's now president of the network, saying, <clears throat> um, I'm going to be in New York next week. Do you want to have lunch? And I said, Gary, you've got two daughters who live in New York. You don't want to have lunch with me. You want to have lunch with them. This is how close <laughs> we are. Uh, so if this is business, let's just talk business. He says, okay, I'm busted. Um Michael is Michael Hall is ready to come back to Dexter, and we want you to do it. Will, will you do it? And you know, I was <laughs> I was I was an, a writer out pitching new ideas. I had just come off of doing Goliath, and uh, was kind of licking my wounds after working on on that show. Sure. And I sat with my your former job. I sat with my writing assistant on on Skype back before Zoom got too too popular. And we bounced around ideas back and forth. And, um, and then I would write up a bunch of stuff, send it to him and have him organize it. And then I finally had a pitch ready for Michael. Um, and flew to New York and <clears throat> went to his apartment. Uh, it was a bit of a reunion. Uh, he and I had been in contact, but uh, hadn't seen him for a long time. And... Went to uh, went to his apartment, pitched him the idea. About forty minutes later, he stood up, said, "I love it. I'm in. Let's do this." Gave me a hug on the way to the airport because I was going back to Martha's Vineyard the same day. I called Gary Levine, who took the call right away, and said, "Well," <laughs> I bet. and I said, "He loves it. He's in." Uh, Gary said, "Nothing about a pilot. Nothing about anything." He said, "Go hire a writing staff. We're doing this." Yep, it was great. It was a, it was a it was a great exciting room, and um, one of the things that that we knew from the start that was going to be completely different about Dexter, uh, outside the look and everything else, was that uh, this isn't the Dexter that we knew before. He's not living in Miami. He's living in Iron Lake, and he has this new identity. Um, and we and we acknowledge the fact that eight or nine years have passed. We're not pretending this yes. is Dexter season nine. We're just moving on. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about um, Iron Lake and why we chose there. This, this, uh, this. Co- I mean, first of all, we wanted someplace cold. We wanted snow. 
We wanted small town. We wanted someplace that Dexter wouldn't feel the, you know, like you live in a, in a big city uh, and there's bad things happening all over the place, right? Uh, Iron Lake, talk about Iron Lake because you, you had a very specific vision for this place uh, even before we started the room. Yes, I, I wanted it to be um, a small, cold town that had nothing to do with Miami. And so that would compel us to shoot the show differently so that the in, in the first frame of the show, he's in the snow. And yeah. um, we wanted him to be living this abstinent, monastic life. Um, gave him uh, a girlfriend who's uh, um, in Native, Native American, indigenous, indigenous yeah, yeah. Seneca, um, chief of police, which is always yeah. great for Dexter to be near a police department. He can't resist um, it. It's like everything's, everything's different, but everything's kind of the same, you know? Like he, he wants to shape his, his world even as, much, as close to what it used to be while being completely different. That's the right, psychopath right. way, and, I guess, or something. Yeah. And as, you know, so he's in this tiny town, population 2,760, I think the billboard says. Yeah. Um, he's got this relationship with this woman. He's got um, his conscience, his, um, the person in his thoughts, the way Harry used to be, is now Deb, his sister, about whom he had once said in an earlier episode, if I were capable of love, and that's, all, that's an interesting thought right there because he's not capable of love, uh, I would love my sister. And so she and Jennifer Carpenter is amazing. And they, of course, have a, yeah. um, a, let's say, a complicated and loving relationship, Michael and Jennifer. And um, it, it was just terrific to have her back. She brought out the best. They brought out the best in each other. Um, and we, we, lo we love Jennifer anyway. And, yes. and we wanted the show to look and feel different in every regard. I mean, the opening scene is Dexter running through the snow to an Iggy Pop song. Yeah. Um, right, so we're saying the to the passenger. audience... The passenger. <laughs> the passenger. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Dedicated to his dark passenger. And yeah. so right away, first, first frame, first sound bite, this show is different. But as Michael Hall himself has said several times, um, who are we kidding? This is Dexter. People are going to die. Yeah. And the audience will be uh, satisfied. One of the things I wanted to clear up was a lot of times people have been talking about Deb as if she is like Harry and that Harry was sort of Dexter's dark passenger, right? It was this voice in his head that was saying, you're going to kill people, but you're going to kill people this way. Um, and for good, right. And for good, right, yeah. Um, whereas Deb is not his dark passenger. Deb is something completely different. You want to talk Deb about is, that? Yeah. De sure. De Deb is, and we all have it in, in us, that corner of your brain that's always talking to you. Even when you're doing something perfectly right. If I'm going on a jog and I'm going by um, on Martha's Vineyard here, if I'm going by uh, uh, Lobsterville Beach, and couldn't be happier, couldn't be in a better position. Um, and there's always that little voice, and it's more than just being Jewish. It's more, there's, always <laughs> that, there's always that little voice that, that's tugging at you with, with reality, and, and whether it's, okay, you're jogging, but what are you having for dinner tonight? And, and, or 
or it's the most beautiful day there ever it could ever be, but a week from now it's going to be raining. Whatever it is, that's what yeah. Deb is to Dexter. So every thought he has, he has to think through and much as we do with ourselves, discuss, is this a good idea or not? And this is Deb, yeah. not Harry. This is Jennifer Carpenter, not James Remar. Yeah. So she has a very strong point of view. And yeah. we're playing her the way we played her in the old, the, the previous series with her foul language and her very strong point, very strong, aggressive point of view with her um, command of Dexter's attention. And, yep. you know, one of the things we would talk about in the writing room back in L.A. is we always had to remind ourselves that Deb is his conscience. She's not a real person. She yep. can't um, she can't open any cabinet door. She can't hand him a pen. She can't drink a cup of tea. And we, we, we reminded ourselves that all through the season and we made a couple we made a couple of visual mistakes, which the audience can find um, as they watch. Or the did we? <laughs> or did we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, because uh, uh, Dexter sort of like as one of the things to watch as the season goes forward is to is to watch that relationship between Dexter and Deb, because Dexter starts to exert his will over who that person is and that voice that he needs to hear. Um, so he I'll does that partly that. Be, partly because of Harrison, yeah. uh, because he wants he wants Harrison back in his life. Um, he exerts his will because the dark passenger, which the audience is, the listeners have just seen pull Deb back underwater. Yeah. Um, and underwater is your subconscious. And yep. in Dexter's nightmare, um, that dark passenger is a bigger voice than his own conscience. And yep. all of that is rooted upon his being born in blood, his having survived a in a pool of his own mother's dismembered mother's body, his blood in a shipping container on the docks in, in, uh, in Miami. And Harrison himself was born in blood. His mother, Rita was killed in front of him, although he was a little child. Uh, it's what is called, um, or could be called inherited trauma. And, yeah. uh, it lives within him and is waiting to be triggered. And sure enough, as, our listeners uh, watch the show; they'll see what happens. Yeah, because that's the that's the question that Dexter has, even in this first episode. Is like, d does he remember? Because even back in the day on the on the on the old show, uh, Dexter had this fear. He would watch his. He would look at his kid and say, "Does he have the dark passenger?" And he would read yeah, in, into like normal actions that a little kid does. That sometimes little kids are mean. He would see that and be like, "Oh my god, he has a dark passenger. He's just like me." Because we all look at children through our our, uh, our lens, you know, our, our own prism. experience. Yeah. Yes. Um, it's not just, does he remember, but does he carry within him, whether he remembers right. or not, does he carry within him what I, Dexter, carry within me and cannot yeah. ignore? Yeah. And that's yeah. uh, the, the question of the season. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Bringing in Dexter's son, Harrison, who has traveled the world to find his father having thought that his father had died in, a, in the hurricane in, in the, the last episode of season eight, and then yeah. having learned that indeed from a letter that Dexter had sent Hannah, Yvonne Strahovski, that, uh, that Dexter indeed survived. And um, as any teenager with a laptop can do, he found, he found his father. 
From yep. Argentina it, to Miami to Oregon to Iron Lake, New York. Which is quite a journey that this kid did, you know, without a lot of cash. And it just show, goes to show how strong-willed he is and uh, uh, this focus that he has looking for and his dad is, is intense, yeah. Yeah, how, how obsessed he is how, and how much he needed a father. He was alone in the world. His, um, his mother had been murdered. His stepmother had uh, died of cancer. He was shipped off to the foster, foster um, care system in the U.S. And he was a teenager. Nobody wants a teenager. Yeah. And so he, and he was maltreated and yep. said, basically, fuck it. I'm going to go find my father. And uh, he did. And, it, it, and he, Harrison's played by this great young actor uh, named Jack Alcott, who Showtime fans would recognize from um, – uh, Good, Good Lord, Lord Bird. Bird. Yeah. Yes. He played one of John Brown. He played John Brown's youngest son. It yeah. was just great in that. And he's incredible in this. Like uh, that scene when uh, when Dexter, after Dexter's had a very rough day, he's convinced somebody's following him. And uh, it's late at night. He comes back home. He's all agitated because he was talking to Matt. Harrison breaks in the cabin. He's looking for proof, trying to see if this really is his dad. Uh, and that that scene between Dexter and Harrison with Deb in the middle. Um, with Deb the imagination in the middle. Yes. Yes. Really, yeah. really powerful. And, and just on the production side of it, um, yeah. uh, we shot that scene in February on a frozen lake, in, in a cabin that's on a frozen lake. And the a cabin next we built. scene, cabin we built, <laughs> that's right, yeah. uh, and built a replica of on the sound stages in Devons, Massachusetts. Um, yep. and the very next scene, uh, Dexter goes to get, or a couple of scenes later, rather, Dexter goes to get Harrison at the bus station. And we shot that on July 28th, um, in 80, at night in 80, it was a heat wave, 84 degrees. All the actors yeah. have to wear the, their heavy coats and their boots and their gloves and their scarves. And we're all standing around in shorts and t-shirts cause it was so hot. It, <laughs> And by then, um, Michael Hall and Jack Alcott got to know each had gotten to know each other so well that the scene was really emotional. Other actors who had already wrapped out of the show came by to watch, um, yep. and they sat down. They did the scene. We did uh, three angles. Uh, our editor Perry Frank, directed by Marco Siega, edited by Perry Frank. They cut it together. And we never touched it. We didn't change a frame of it. It was just perfect because the actors knew exactly what to do. And by then, we were at the end of the shoot. We finished shooting two days later. Marcos, everybody was locked in. And uh, yeah. it's, it's just a beautiful, heartbreaking scene. Yeah, it was, it was fun to watch those two, Michael and Jack, get to know each other as, as they went along. Because um, Jack, I remember there's a certain point where uh, Michael saw some dailies of Jack. That he and Jack was doing like a, a scene without Dexter even in it. Um, I can't remember what it was, but uh, Michael watched it and, he, and, he, and then he went, "That son of a gun! He's copying. He's he's mimicking <laughs> me. My movements, the things I do in my leg, the way I scratch my left leg. Um, that's not I in eat. the script or anything. The way. The oh way yeah, for eats. sure. The way they eat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he's cast, casting. Harrison was was a was a coup. This season, which we shot, the first 50 days, we shot all outdoors. Uh, not a lot of, t no TV shows really do that, I don't think, that have to, because we had to chase the winter the way that we did. 
So well, we didn't get we had to- all, We had all the scripts written too. Right, yeah, we had all 10 episodes. So we were shooting on day one, we shot from three different episodes. On day two, we shot from you know, four different episodes. Sometimes it would be episode six and episode one and episode 10. And, and two directors you know, working on the same day and also having yeah. to explain to the actors or they would ask us or, or ask the directors, okay, I'm shooting yeah. this from episode four and this from episode 10 and this from episode one. What are, and when we get to the one in episode nine, what was the scene just before? Because yeah. what am I feeling? Did I yes. just yeah, have yeah. an argument with my girlfriend? Did I just get in a fight with my son? Did I just kill somebody? What was the scene right before this, which we're going to shoot in May? And this is February 10th. Yeah. Um, so we would have to do that because we had all 10 scripts written. We basically shot a 10-hour movie. And yes. so we shot, we shot based on um, locations. We were location-dependent. Yeah. Plus, as you say, we shot the first 50 days exterior or away from the studio because we had to build the sets on the studio, at the studio. Um, and it wasn't until we could go there for cover uh, and catch up to ourselves that it actually kind of started to feel normal. We had offices, we had bathrooms. Um, yeah, so nice to have a bathroom in that portage on. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but all this to say that like, so Dex, Michael C. Hall is playing Dexter, normally would have a, uh, a kill as a release, right? Yes, uh, yes. And it would build up and build up and build up. And then finally, in the course of 10 days, Dexter would kill somebody. And, you know, and that's a lot to, for Michael to sort of take on <clears throat> this like dark passenger kill room scenes, uh, which he loved to do, but there, you know, it's a lot. But he didn't get to do that until I think 12 weeks in. <laughs> so yeah, it, it was those, something like that. He, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he and I have talked about it, and it may have even been on your show. I think I asked him. Because oh, yeah. in the in the early days of the show, uh, of, of the, the previous Dexter, it would be building toward taking out the big bad: Jimmy Smith, John Lithgow, yeah. uh, Lila Murray, uh, Christian Carmago. And so Michael Hall would build and build and build in his own intensity, as yeah. as any great actor would. And by the time the tenth or twelfth episode came around, Michael was off to himself. Um, living in his head. Um, but because in our show, because we shot all over the place and a kill would happen four weeks in and another kill would happen 11 weeks in, that that tension, that anxiety, that intensity wasn't building in Michael in the same way. It was a very different experience for him. Hence, it was a very different and more pleasurable experience for us. Yeah, but he was ready to kill Matt when you know, Steve Robertson when that when that happened when we finally built that kill room, uh, it was. I mean, I don't know if you remember that day, but watching Michael yes. walk into the plastic room and just inhabit Dexter, inhabit well, to, the dark to pull on a, to pull on a Henley and a leather yeah. um, uh, apron and in the in the elbow length gloves and. To hold to to hold to cut cut Steve's face with that piece of glass and yeah. make the blood slide. I mean, we we all of us, Michael especially, but all of us. Yeah. It was a very special day for all of us. We um, yeah. we slipped back into doing something that we knew was right. Yeah. Uh, I'm not talking about killing people is right. I'm no. talking about dramatically, thematically, yeah. artistically, with a small a. Uh, we were home again. 
Yeah, I remember uh, Jen Garbino, our prop master. Props. That yeah. was her most nervous day of all because she she knows that fans love their kill rooms, and mm. if anything isn't right, they will come down. They will come after her. <laughs> She's tough. But that day, she was like really nervous, and you could feel the energy bouncing off of her. I was mm. like, "Are you okay? What's going on?" She's like, "I just really want to get this right." You know, I want to get everything the way. And she did, by the way. It was. Yeah, she did. She was terrific. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about Matt. How fun was that guy? Steve, first of all, he's an amazing actor. And and came, and the minute you saw him enter Fred's Fish and Game and be <laughs> this obnoxious asshole, uh, this Wall Street um, broker who's from the town, whose father was the richest guy in town. Um, yeah. And... Right away, and what's interesting is he's so tempting. You want to kill him on the spot, but Dexter <laughs> right. is Dexter is abstinent, so he won't he won't buy into it. And uh, remember when he goes to the police station to visit Angela, played by Julia Jones, um, he's talking about everything except Matt. This is after uh, Matt's gun uh, FBI clearance wouldn't pass. And yeah. of course, because it's a small town, the police station already knew about it, and they want to yeah. they want to talk about it. And um, but he He's doesn't like, want to talk about it. How about that stop sign? How about we look yeah, at the stop that, sign up near the package store? <laughs> yeah, right. Or boy, those those pecan pies that you just recovered smell terrific. <laughs> you know, I yeah, don't want to know about anything about Matt because I'm not going there. And yeah, he doesn't um, want to. He doesn't want to be tempted by this guy, even though it, back in the old days, if he'd have met this guy and then heard that he was responsible, may have been responsible for the deaths of five different people and got away with it. That that's like, that's what Dexter looked. That's what he loved. <laughs> well, so what he, he was doing this. was really he was suppressing his instinct and his dark passenger and those <clears throat> antenna that would go doing. Yeah, this is something to pay attention to, and he was not going to let that happen until. Matt made it happen. Even in the room, we had that. We had like long discussions about uh, if Harrison had not arrived in town and sort of upset Dexter's equilibrium, you know, because Dexter, in a lot of ways, this deer, this white deer that's out there, is about connection. You know, it's about connection and addiction. We can talk about the deer in a second, but um, uh. If Harrison hadn't been there and and uh, uh, Matt had shot that deer in front of him, I think Dexter could have resisted the urge to kill this guy. But this that connection with that deer hurt his soul so much, and his anger again. This is like one of the most human kills that Dexter's had. You know, there's been a, well, there's been a few of them. Yeah, but it's interesting. The the I'm not I, I'm not sure I agree. Um, yeah, I love it. That that I I think that. Dexter, knowing what he knew um, about Matt, what he finally learns about Matt from Bill, first from Esther, then uh, from Bill in the uh, in the scene when, where Dexter's delivering the gun, that Matt indeed yeah. was driving that boat, indeed rammed into the other boat after the other boat had yielded um, yeah. and sort of shown its neck and still went at it. Um, he knew that Matt deserved to die. Um, and... I think Dexter's dark passenger, regardless of Harrison, regardless of the white buck, um, was finally challenged to the point where he yielded to that. Again, that's Deb getting pulled under the water by the dark passenger in that beautiful scene. Yeah. 
Um, chasing the white buck is something that we believe, we open with it, and we believe Dexter's yeah. been doing this for years. And yeah. it is, A, it's physical exertion, um, it's mental exertion, it is a craving to have a connection with another living thing that he doesn't have to explain himself away to or pretend that he's someone else. When he's with Angela, yeah. he's or anybody else in this small town, you know, if they found if they knew who he really was, um, it would all blow up in his face. Yeah, this is a this is a majestic uh, creature with a long lineage and 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 rare a rare creature, the albino um, deer, with whom he had. I'm, I'm doing finger quotes, a relationship. Yep. Um, because he was not a, a non-judgmental relationship. Um, he would chase this deer, and finally he got close enough to the deer where they almost um, <laughs> touched foreheads. And in fact, when we when we shot it, we had them touching foreheads, and Showtime yep, wanted to yep. pull it back a little bit, which broke my heart broke my heart some because I I really loved that that moment. But um, yeah. it's well, it was interesting because it because it made you feel like a little bit like is this real or is this not? Is this really happening? Yes. Is it it like ended this this strange this this beautiful magical realism in a way because you know that deer represented so much complex ideas inside of Dexter that, you know, even it's it, in some ways when he sticks his finger, when he wraps his finger around the iron... The trigger. I see comma the, of I, the trigger. What was the word you, yeah, had, the, you put the, in the script? Steel comma. The steel comma of the trigger, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, that's a little bit like, an, like a, you know, because Dexter's about addiction. Um, it's like when an alcoholic, you know, mm -hmm. opens up a bottle of bourbon, sniffs it. And smells it, put, yep. Smells it, puts the cap back on it, puts it back on the shelf, and it's like I can—I've defeated this thing, you know. Yes, the dark passenger yes. can't control me, because um, I'm not sure that killing that deer would give him would feed the dark passenger either. That was the other thing we talked a lot about in the room. Was that right? I agree. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, because it, he would then just have to move on to the next, and he—I mean, the the dark passenger would still be talking to him, and he'd have to find something else. I mean, that's yeah. one of the things of um, the calendar. Um, yes. that we have in there, which has its own symbolism. And, it's, it, and we made a point of showing that there were several calendars, several years of abstinence, and yeah. that red Sharpie marker um, coming cro crossing off each day of abstinence for years and years and years. And who are we kidding? That red Sharpie marker looks like a cheek slice from <laughs> totally, his kill yeah. table. <laughs> yeah, and that's, no, and that's no accident. That's no accident. No, no. That was very, very purposeful. Um, and then, you know, the, the thing about killing somebody when you haven't done it for 10 years, as we all know, is maybe you're a little rusty. <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe may, you don't cover maybe. your tracks as well as you used to. <laughs> well, he actually says, um, he, he actually says uh, to Steve, to Matt when he's on the table, I'm a little out of practice. I'm sorry, sorry for the mess. I'm a little out of practice. And then, um, as always happens, with all serial killers I know about, they leave something behind. Even the Zodiac killer. I mean, the Zodiac killer yeah. just got decoded, I'm sure you know. 
Um, yeah, yeah. He left. Some, he he messed up. He was out of practice and he made a mistake, and spends the next couple of episodes trying to cover up for that. Yep. Um, yep. And and it's always it's, blood. It's just, always yeah. leads back to blood. Yeah. Blood is the body's truth. Yep. The uh, little hint for upcoming episode. Everybody listen for that. That'll be fun. Um, you want to give fans just a general idea of what they can expect this season without spoiling anything? Is, do you think that's possible, Clyde? Yeah, we could try. <laughs> well, well, again, we'll stick with the theme of fathers and sons. Yes. Um, so um, the Matt, whom Dexter kills in the first episode, has a very strong... It's, look, it's no secret. Has a very strong father, and yep. uh, played by played Clancy by, Brown. Clancy yeah. Brown. Uh, we're so lucky to get him. The greatest guy in the world. Life, yeah. And again, it's interesting with Dexter. We always choose these big guys. At least in my my tenure, um, John yes. Lithgow and and um, Jimmy Smith and uh, yeah. uh, Kate and uh, Clancy Brown. I mean, it's like. Dexter against Easter Island, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> these, these, and he'll, and you know, and of course it's Dexter, so he's going to prevail. I mean, uh, Harrison, who is disaffected from Dexter, um, and attracted to Kurt's fatherly instincts, um, kind of walks the razor a little bit between Dexter, his his own father, and the father of one of Dexter's victims, which, of course, Harrison doesn't know about. Harrison yeah, doesn't know a, that. Go ahead. It's like we tell the story about a father who lost his son and a father who's gained his son and doesn't want to lose him, you know? And that's, so, right, that's right. That, that's that's yeah. really well put. And, the, and Harrison doesn't quite know what to do. First of all, Harrison has been abandoned. He's angry. He's hurt. He's lonely. And yet... He's resourceful and confident. <clears throat> I think Deb says to him in episode two, I think it is, something to the extent of not everybody is as ill-equipped to meet new people as you, you dumb fuck. Um, because <laughs> Her Harrison goes off with the, the other high school kids and makes friends right away and um, is comfortable within himself and is comfortable trying to discover if pain, his own internal pain, is going to defeat him or if yeah. he can embrace it um, and, yeah, become we, a, and become a better young man. Yeah, we consciously, when we were crafting Harrison in the room, we wanted, we didn't want that sort of, I mean, let's face it, with the, the flashbacks to young Dexter in, in like the first three seasons, he's, uh, he's an uncomfortable kid. <laughs> You yes. know, he's always kind of yes. sweaty, kind of awkward, enters basketball well, courts with knives. With um, knives, it's about, it's and, about to kill somebody when he was a teenager. Yeah. 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 And we wanted we wanted someone that looks completely different than that, you know, somebody that, because, you know, kids come in all shapes, sizes, and forms. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, he has, uh, yet, yet, yet he has a deep, um, in his marrow, pain and anger. Yes. And as and so a lot of what he's doing is a lot of what his father does. He's yeah. putting on a front. He's got he's wearing he, the mask. He's wearing the mask. Um Maybe. and whether or not he has the dark passenger will will discover yeah. as as the season goes on. 
And that's a wrap for this week's episode. Thank you, Clyde, uh, for coming on board. It's a pleasure, my friend. Yeah. Thank you, uh, Michael C. Hall, for coming on board. Uh, don't forget to listen every Tuesday and subscribe to the Dexter New Blood wrap-up wherever you get your podcasts. And watch Dexter New Blood Sundays only on Showtime. This official podcast of the Showtime original series Dexter New Blood is produced by Showtime in conjunction with Malka Media.